Hello, I'm Stephen Hill from the Riot Act podcast. You're about to listen to one of our very special classic album series podcasts that we do every other week on one of our favourite bands, me and my co-host Renfrey Deadman. Uh, this week we are talking about the album Jupiter by Cavin, and there's another one coming straight after that on Antenna by Cavin. Now, usually we kick off straight away, me and Renfrey in the room, and we introduce the podcast properly, and blah, blah, blah. There we go. It's done. Um, I'm just coming to you at the start of this podcast because we recorded the show that you're about to listen to, and then a couple of days later, we got an email from Mr. Stephen Brodsky of Cavin fame himself, and he actually sent us a load of voice notes um, with some of the answers to some questions that Renfrey and I had regarding both of the albums that we're going to be talking about today. So when I say at the end of this podcast, that's it, that's the end, which I will do, it's not quite the end because... At the very, very end, after we've spoken and waxed lyrical for a couple of hours on how great Cavin are, we then get to hear from the man himself, Stephen Brodsky, on exactly why Cavin are so great. So I'm going to hand over to me right now for the start of this classic album series. If you're listening to this for free, thanks very much. We appreciate that. The second part on Antenna is going to be over on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash podcast, where you can get a couple of these every other week as part of our $5 a month tier. So if you like what you hear now and you're not a patron, please go over and sign up to that. Um, that's a hard sell out of the way. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks. Hello, welcome to Riot Act, the alternative music podcast with me, Stephen Hill, and him, Rimfrey Deadman. Hello. Look at him, rolling my R's. Lovely the roll Rimfrey of the R there. there, thank you. Thanks very much. I've been waiting all day and practicing all day to say your name we're doing a, a rare evening record aren't we yeah, normally yeah. we get the shit done early yeah but this is a rare evening record because hello it's another one of our classic album series that we do renfrey and i put together a list of what is it 109 albums or something like that it's a Quite little a, lot, a little over 100 yeah yeah it's a little over 100 records that we think are the best albums in the world ever full stop and what we do on this podcast is we look at those albums and we talk about why we think that um you can go over to our patreon page <laughs> patreon.com forward slash right act podcast and you can spend five pound five dollars i should say it's not even pounds it's five dollars a month for access to all of our previous special podcasts on the likes of guns and roses marilyn manson weezer blur pink floyd glass jaw u2 lamb of god radiohead sepultura and maybe some more that I can't... Manic Street Preachers, and maybe some more that I can't think of off the top of my head now. But that's just a kind of start. Um, so go over there now and have a little look-see. If you enjoy this podcast, which we're about to give to you now. Today, we are talking about the career, the career arc and trajectory, I guess you'd say, of one of our very, very favourite artists. Um, Boston Hardcore Illumini turned space rock futuristic um nearly men i suppose without with all due respect to the band who we both love mm. but it's cave-in um who have had a fucking phenomenally interesting career and we're going to be focusing on two of their always excellent albums in part two we're going to be talking about the 2003 alt rock masterclass that is their major label debut antenna and all the drama that went on before and behind that record but in this part we're going to be examining the band's second full-length album 2000's massive left turn jupiter 
released on the 8th of August 2000. Renfrey, before we kick off, I just mentioned most of the bands that we've done on Classic Albums so far. This is the first time, really, that we are delving into, I would say, a pretty underground band in caving is that fair it certainly felt like a very very different research process this one usually <clears throat> it's the case that we get stuck in rabbit holes of research and usually whoever's doing the the, the main bulk of the research for each classic album usually asks for a day extension or whatever because they've got so far down the rabbit hole of like youtube videos and watching interview clips and so on and so forth this one was not like that for me um and i'm assuming it wasn't like that for you either it was like there is a finite amount of resources and that's mm. your lot <laughs> more or less do, do you yeah. is that your experience as well yeah i mean you have to dig deep i think to find uh the sort of stuff that we normally look for. Yeah. I mean, usually when you're talking about Pink Floyd and Guns N' Roses and U2, you can go, well, this album sold 7 million copies. It sold a million copies in a week. It was number one. Come the end of the year, it's gone on to be the 15th biggest selling album of all time. Obviously, um, some in some people's eyes, that's what would make a classic album, you know, it being this massive cultural phenomenon. Um, neither of these albums are that, but in my mind musically what Cavin have done and the career they've had is as interesting and creative and influential to obviously a far smaller amount of people but the people that they have influenced and the way in which they have influenced a scene that people hold so dear to them I think means that <laughs> even though we've had to dig a hell of a lot deeper, mm. even though we've had to look a hell of a lot harder, mm. even though we've had to scrabble around for, like you say, the kind of finite amount of resources that we have. Mm. Um, I think they absolutely belong in that caliber and category of band without any question whatsoever, as far as I'm concerned. I'm absolutely not doubting that in the slightest. Um, Caven mm. are also a really bizarre band in the sense that um their story is not traditional in any way sense or in any shape sense or form or anything like that and just the sheer breadth of what they've done i mean they have phases to their career and you could argue that in the four or so hours that we're going to talk today however long it ends up being we're only going to focus on one phase of their career i would argue i would argue you can mm. break it up into three phases and I think you've probably f yep. figured those out in your head uh, very roughly, very, very roughly. And I think we're concentrating very much on the second phase of their career. But this really, I mean, you can we will talk for four hours and we will dip into bits and pieces of the first phase and the third phase. But there's so much about this band that we're not even going to vaguely touch, I think, which is insane. Mm. I mean, the fact that we're going to be talking this long about Cave-In and White Silence probably isn't going to come up all that much is kind of mad, yeah. really. You know. Well, I was just about to say, we will one day be going in on certain parts of Converge's discography. No spoilers. Um, but if you're wondering why in this we don't speak about Converge that much um, or, you know, Stephen Brodsky's, um, you know, involvement with the band, um, then, you know, that would be why, uh, because we want to save the Converge stuff for the Converge stuff. But, you know, I think it is important, obviously, to point out 
that um, the scene they came from, um, which I guess would what you would call the first stage of their career, the kind of the um, the early metalcore, the hardcore stage, uh, is kind of important to at least fill people in on yeah so that they can understand just how big that jump became yeah. when we get to jupiter um so let's talk about boston hardcore to, to kick us off um one of your favorite was, topics oh mate do you know what i did a piece for metal hammer which wasn't even suggested to me mm. because i thought the suggestion of doing a piece on kind of late 90s early noughties boston hardcore to metal hammer magazine in 2017 would be frankly ridiculous it would be the sort of thing where they'd go you know mm. right so i didn't even bother suggesting it because i was like there's no way that, it's, that they're going to do that they're not going to run with that and eleanor um i did so the, the kind of backstory to it was is <laughs> although so i'm not going to mention converge that much i i did a retrospective um when they did the jane doe live thing converge yep. brought out jane Roadburn. Live, didn't they? Yep. Yep. and roadburn yeah and um so we did a sort of a retrospective on jane doe and i spoke to jacob bannon who's great and i did the piece and where your wounds were coming to town a few weeks later and i sort of mentioned to eleanor who's the features editor at metal hammer that um i loved doing the kind of the, the Jane Doe piece because it brought back so many memories from all these bands that I really really loved and I noticed that there were you know kind of members of certain bands within the where your wounds camp that I was like oh you know there's you know different people that reminded me of that and oh what a great scene you know that and I sort of said you know that scene was such a massive exciting thing for me when I was like 20 odd mm. and she went oh well why don't you do a a feature on it now i don't know if she thought i was gonna come back and do a feature on shadows for and kill switch engage <laughs> um who obviously are from that part of the world as well but um i never really had any intention of doing that to be honest um i got this piece in my mind and what i wanted it to be and it's the only time where you know oh you'll know you get a word count when you do a feature mm -hmm. um the word count was i think it was like 1750 words right i sent in a nearly 5000 <laughs> words <laughs> and i said i just can't i can't cut this down anymore i can't um and i went and spoke to jacob bannon um at the underworld when where your wounds played uh, desert fest I spoke to Wes from American Nightmare. I spoke to Aaron Turner, who's obviously the, the Hydra founder Hydra. of Hydrahead and mm -hmm. is in ISIS. I spoke to Kevin Baker from the Hope Conspiracy. Um, uh, but, and, and I spoke over email with Stephen Brodsky about Cave-In. And um, I will be looking back on that um, feature that I did as a sort of little bit of a well of inspiration um as we as we go through this first part but exclusive kind of material really, by the sounds exclusive of it. material yeah um but yeah from that five thousand word <laughs> manuscript <Essay. laughs> that i that i never got to use in the first place so um i mean i i loved that hydra heads scene i loved all of that stuff mm -hmm. um i think i kind of said it in my piece which was that when i was getting into punk when i was about sort of 14 15 you would hear tales of the kind of american hardcore and the the american and washington california um new york and boston were usually the four places that people would mention as the big scenes now 
there were obviously other places you know i don't i'm not going to name every single one of them but there are obviously other people from other places um uh and but that kind of the birth of of, of american hardcore as it was those were the four places that got spoken about a lot when i was growing up and it was weird because i always looked at new york and i went well you've got agnostic front and you've got you know chromags and then i'd look at and they're really big and everyone goes on about how great they are and then you look at la and you go well you've got black flag and the circle jerks and tsol and everyone would go oh yeah you know they're the legendary band and you look at washington and go well you got minor threat and bad brains and i looked at boston's lot and i just thought well, i don't really i don't really know anything about these bands so i always thought that the cool thing about boston is that as good as those you know there are a load of great bands from the 80s to come out of boston and they did have a really good hardcore scene i feel like the kind of definitive period for boston hardcore is this period in which cabin played such a massive part in formulating I think everything that Converge have done or everything that Hydrohead Records did or everything that Cave-In did or, you know, Bane as well, um, An American Nightmare, they, to me, are the definitive bands of that part of the world when it comes to punk rock. And I don't think that's a particularly... I don't even... I mean, some purists might think it is, but I don't really, really genuinely don't think that that is a at all a controversial statement to be making in 2020 at all i think history has totally proved me right it's never occurred to me that there is particularly any other period where mm. um obviously there are other bands that have come from boston but where where an entire scene that i mean what is the scene it's sort of people who are linked by a common goal maybe it's not necessarily music that sounds the same as one another i think that's where you make the distinction between a scene and a genre um mm. and it's difficult to think of a boston scene outside of that sort of late 90s early noughties metalcore thing um for me mm. i mean i also will hold my hands up and say i'm not an expert in uh, boston uh, uh you know bostonian music particularly um mm. but uh yeah, I, I don't know of any other kind of scenes that sprung up in and around that city, as far as I'm aware. Well, it was, you know, they've always had a big punk scene in Boston. And I think towards the sort of mid part of the 90s, or maybe even a bit earlier, to be fair, uh, the sort of early 90s, it got well violent. As a lot of those sort of hardcore scenes did, it got well violent. It sort of went one of two ways, didn't it? Most of that first wave of American hardcore, it seems to either get really, really violent and be horrible, or it sort of got quite nice and got signed to a major label and then went on tour with Anthrax or something. You know what I mean? Mm. So, um, uh, and Boston was kind of the the former. It was quite felt like it was quite a quite a violent place to be. Um, but I discovered the Dillinger Escape Plan basically. I mean, um, and the Dillinger Escape Plan as I've said a whole bunch of times before. And again, we won't talk too much about Dillinger. We won't talk too much about Botch because they're bands that we will be going into on this series again. But having discovered music that sounded like that, um, Poison the Well were another one that I, that I talk about a lot. Snapcase, another band that I talk about a lot from that period. Discovering all of those bands at that point, to suddenly get into Converge and find, you know, a sort of focal point and a label that was putting out all of these local bands and to find a place where it was kind of condensed into one area 
I have to say, from across the pond, um, it looked like the most in, and felt like the most exciting thing in the world. I was playing in a, you know, to all intents and purposes, hardcore band at the time. Um, you know, we were hugely influenced by that music that came out from around that period. And we, you know, we used to get fanzines and look on the, you know, the kind of nascent early days of the internet, the interweb and look on message boards and stuff and have people like, you know, and, and go to shows and just say like, what's kind of Boston. And I used to go up to people when they were selling their little record, their little sort of record and CD racks at, you know, DIY hardcore shows. And I'd go, have you got any, anything from Boston? Like I want something that sounds like the Boston bands. And that's how big a fucking part it played in the sort of the music that I liked. Mm. Um, it's where I got uh, Darkest Hour, Judas Factor, um, Drowning Man, all those kind of bands that, I, that I've absolutely loved around the sort of turn of the millennium. That all kind of flowered and so it felt like the Boston hardcore scene and, and my obsession with it and looking for it and digging out like, you know, when when Canute put their out, you know, they're from Switzerland, but they were out on Hydrahead, so it's like, I'm buying that. Yeah, yeah. Straight away. Pelican, I'm buying that. Straight away. Um, I just fucking loved it, man. I just fucking love this shit so so much it just felt magic to me um you weren't really into it back then were you You didn't really know were you aware of any of this stuff at that particular stage absolutely not um i do recall you listen to the offspring weren't you you had conspiracy of one uh, on the turntable <laughs> I, I mean i yeah i i probably would have just been getting out of my offspring phase because i was quite disappointed with conspiracy yeah. of one i i felt it was americana oh, thank, part thank two. you <laughs> yeah thank you there's a weird group of people on twitter who think conspiracy of one is like the best fucking no and they're, men they're absolutely mental no anyway. it's it's almost track for track a weaker version of the previous release uh early offspring reference that's nice um but no <laughs> absolutely not um i was aware of the artwork for jane doe it certainly wasn't as iconic as it has become now but um i was aware of that artwork because i recall jane doe being i used to keep track of the kerrang albums of the year every year and at that stage i would listen to all sorts of different types of rock music bar anything that i would have put into extreme uh, in the extreme category and that would include hardcore punk and stuff like that hardcore punk or uh, metalcore or anything like that um i've kind of said on this podcast before anything kind of beyond slayer really um i think i mean it was fairly early on that i heard uh vision of disorder on a kerrang cd and that probably was 98 because that was from the imprint record mm. but that was very much yeah. the odd outlier track i was like well that's the only band who are this heavy that i like kind of thing um yeah, yeah so it was definitely a few years later that i discovered this stuff undoubtedly right that's fair enough oh mate yeah i mean i was into like vod and Wilhaven. i think were definitely um good bands for preparing me for do you know what i mean like um what was about to sort of happen yeah uh in the world but but anyway um to go back to 
to the kind of Boston thing at its formation. I mean, one of the things I actually spoke to Steve Brodsky and asked him about that kind of, you know, the, the, the early days of how the scene kind of came together. And I think for a lot of musicians, as will surprise no one, um, Converge and particularly Halo in a Haystack uh, is something that Steve Brodsky brought up and said um, that record was totally transformative for me because I was hearing not only a local band doing something true no sorry because i was hearing a local band doing something truly fresh with heavy music not only did it make me want to follow that path it allowed me to bond more closely with people like adam who shared a similar vision and it turned out that a lot of people in my immediate area felt the same way so converge are the leaders of that scene i think you know like most of the people that i spoke to again speaking to aaron turner and he said when he got petitioning the empty sky he got a kind of early copy of it and he just couldn't believe how great they were you know and mm. i think every scene needs a leader um i mean if we turn it to new metal which we always like to do renfrey um corn <laughs> corn were the leaders of, of that stuff mm. but it doesn't necessarily mean that they go on to be the best band so you know i think deftones quite quickly usurped what corn did really so um not that i'm suggesting cave-in usurped what converge did that's the slightly more difficult conversation <laughs> to be having i think but um but yeah but there you go um so just to interject think, there, it's almost a worthless conversation to have isn't it because their different careers took such I, they really did take very very different turns oh yeah massively um, massively yeah uh i was just double checking when halo and a haystack came out i mean halo and a haystack came out in 1994 i actually thought mm. uh, in my mind i thought it was 96 but no it's 94 um and considering that people talk about the scene being late 90s early noughties you know yeah. it really was but yeah halo and a haystack was definitely um uh an outlier in that sense i think do you understand yeah. it's quite i think um it's difficult for modern um so halo and a haystack is one of those records which i've only listened to a few times kind of out of curiosity really because obviously i think most people would agree it's probably the worst converge record um but going to, mm -hmm. can you understand uh at that time why that album would have had that impact on people i think for a local band to sound like that yeah absolutely in 1994 i mean there's I'll come to another quote that I've got from it later on regarding Cabin rather than Converge. But I think, you know, 1994, what hardcore was, um, it sort of stalled a little bit into like, I mean, you know, this is my very, this is, would be my kind of 14 year old brain understanding of, of what hardcore was. And when you looked at what was kind of being pushed as hardcore at that point, you know, I mentioned, no, I didn't mention Madball earlier. That was a conversation we were having before we started <laughs> this podcast, but Stuff like Madball, you know, Earth Crisis were, Earth Crisis was seen as this sort of revolutionary thing, mm. you know, mm. um, and I can sort, you know, I can, I can sort of understand it, but it just really didn't last very long. And I think if you listen to Earth, you know, those early Earth Crisis recordings, and you listen to those early Converge recordings, and think that there's not really a big gap of time between them. I mean, for me, I know which one sort of stands out. Maybe not production-wise, but certainly in terms of the ideas being presented, I know which one kind of feels more forward-thinking in 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 my eyes. And it's it's not Earth Crisis, to be honest. <laughs> yes, I think I'd agree. 
Yeah. Now, obviously, this scene ended up being sort of overshadowed in the mainstream by bands like Killswitch Engage and Shadows Fall and blah blah blah, as I sort of mentioned. Um, those bands were were brilliant. Um, there's there's a little scene, um, sorry, a little quote I found that I didn't use for this piece um, from Stephen Brodsky when I asked about the kind of early shows, and he said there's a place in North Andover, Massachusetts called the Red Barn where I saw my first local hardcore show. Me and my old best friend went together, dressed like the metalheads we were. Well, the older hardcore kids didn't like the looks of us and we got targeted with some dumb, violent shit. The incident actually soured me on the local hardcore scene for about a year before I decided to give it another shot, which is around the time that Cave informed. That's when things seemed to turn around for the better and I experienced a lot of great moments at the Red Barn, which was essentially what you might picture it to be, a small red box plunked down in the heart of suburbia. Inside was like a... It was lit like a pharmacy and sounded like total garbage, but it was one of the only all ages venues that consistently book shows. Um, there's another scene, there's another quote from Jake Bannon later on in that piece where he says, you know, those young kids, you've got to think like, the converge were like 15, 14, 15 when, when that album came out. Um, and they were going to the classic, if you like, quote unquote classic hardcore shows, mm. the established hardcore areas with the punks that have been hanging around there since the 80s and we're kind of getting shunned by them so what better thing to do than to go to a completely different venue and go well fuck you we'll start our own scene and the fact that that scene has basically i would say commercially commercially critically artistically far outstripped anything any of those early bands were doing yeah i think it's a pretty fucking cool two finger to you know those regimented punk rocks that punk rockers that fucking got in their face in the first place you know it's a brilliant it's a brilliant example of where the diy ethos can work and when it can be a big fuck you to those people Mm. um so often um the best kind of music comes from trying to prove your worth doesn't it you know um and it sounds like that's exactly what happened here so yeah yeah um did you get a chance to listen to um the first caving album until your heart stops the the heavy one um uh, i know i know it i i haven't actually re-listened to it whilst doing this uh uh research but i know it well enough to talk about it so great well i think we should talk about it because um th- this album is really really brilliant <laughs> i yeah. think yeah. like i know that's maybe you know there was a period when caving were in the middle of this second phase that we're we're talking about now where people sort of seem to uh, a few people i knew seem to i mean, this might have just been the people i was hanging around with but a few people seem to kind of dismiss until your heart stops like oh well you know they've gone on they've matured now and they're doing much better stuff now but i always thought it was fucking brilliant this is a this is a great metalcore record. When you when we bemoan modern metalcore, it's because we listen to we'd listen to stuff like this yeah. when we were growing up, and it's that's a, that's why. It's a classic of its genre. I, I'm a, I'm a little bit surprised at that. I mean, I I can under I can understand someone getting into Caving um, through the Antenna album. Um, you know, going back to this and being like, oh, I don't understand it. But um, mm. yeah, that kind of that attitude that. I don't know, maybe they'd matured. Was it those sorts of words being used or something like that? You know, Um, this is a very quote unquote mature version of metalcore. I mean, it goes off into all sorts of fucking places. Um, It's relentless, yet very dynamic and 
odd and strange it has the odd segue things that they used yep. to use which became quite a sort of tropey cave-in thing to do early on certainly up to like um creative eclipses and so on and so forth uh but those segues really i mean bands like failure used to do that as well i think maybe that was a failure mm. ripoff quite possibly i don't know that for a fact they still do do it the failure do do so yeah, yeah they do but um mm. but they were also they were doing it you know back in those uh sort of mid-90s yeah. albums as well weren't they mm. um it is a really i mean and and yeah and as 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 i said it's also incredibly dynamic even for a metalcore of that time which was far more dynamic mm. in my eyes than the metalcore you get now it just even then you could tell that they were an erratic band i don't think you could tell what was going to come next but you could tell that they were a bit of a scatty band let's say even to the point where yeah. and this is a controversial thing to say and i know you're going to say you're wrong and i'm going to accept you saying i'm wrong because you're, you're right i am wrong um weirdly i prefer beyond hypothermia to until your heart stops or at least i listen to beyond hypothermia more than i listen to until your heart stops and i think i think the reason i think the reason for that is because until your heart stops is such a head fuck Mm. that i can only kind of listen to it from time to time whereas beyond hypothermia it is a little bit more straight ahead and is a little bit more straight down the line which usually isn't my thing but you can just fucking bang your head to it um well i I think the 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 production on until your heart stops which makes it sound like it is coming to fucking gnaw your guts out yeah is what makes that album such a fucking great record i mean it's funny because i mean i'm I'm not gonna he's my mate i ain't gonna throw him under the bus but bless him merlin order merlin metal hammer who i you know who who you know is not really a massive metalcore guy but he is a big kill such engage fan And you get this thing sometimes where people go, well, you know, Kill Such Engage were the kind of... And, I, and we did, when I guested on the, the Metal Hammer podcast recently, and I said, you know, I can't really pick Alive or Just Breathing as my favourite Kill Such Engage album because when it came out, I just thought, I've heard this done loads better. I remember Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and this would be the kind of thing that I would put in front of people and go, you cannot, you know, <laughs> this is, this is what, four years before... And, alive or just breathing probably recorded on you know a, a fraction of the budget and i just i can't see the argument how anyone could possibly turn around you can say you prefer it mm. if you prefer alive or just breathing that's a different thing but i do not know how you could sort of put this in front of someone and go yes no that is um that is a better made more interesting more kind of creatively dynamic record it's it's just not it's just absolutely not definitely not a more dynamic or more creative record um i can understand uh kill switch are pleasant to listen to they never i mean you said yourself the production on this like science sounds it's almost oppressive in a weird way even or oh, 22 years on no yeah, twenty two years 22 on. Twenty two years on, it still sounds really like difficult. Like sometimes tough to listen to. Like sometimes really, really, and and in a way, when I look at Killswitch Engage and Cave In, and I know there's only four years apart, and I know they're technically part of the same genre, yada yada yada. But 
I, I see completely different bands and I actually struggle to kind of see loads um, loads of similarities between the two. I mean, there are some obvious ones, but I don't even equate Caven with the Killswitch Engages and the Shadows Falls and all that kind of scene at all, no. weirdly. No, um, I mean, I, yeah, I don't think you can really. I mean... If you go on its Wikipedia page, it says metalcore on the genre. Yeah. So you kind of have to a little bit. But that's the but thing. That's the thing. I've always, it's only ever been in retrospect that I've seen it like that. I don't mm. feel like people, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because I wasn't, I don't feel like I was, well, I, I wasn't there at the time. Um, so maybe I am in wrong, wrong in saying this, but I just don't feel like pe- many people when oh kill switch engage it's just an inferior version of cave-in because i don't think many of people would have had cave-in as the reference point yeah i mean i did uh, i'm i'm saying you're one of the few maybe. <laughs> yeah i did and people went what what are you on about no um but hey what yeah i'm a snob aren't i so whatever <laughs> i'm an elitist punk asshole that's fine um yeah i mean a really really great record and i think <laughs> the other thing about this record is it leaves so much scope for them to go and do more interesting stuff with really really fucking heavy music and that's kind of what's so interesting about the fact that they just went now nah, we're not going to do that we're absolutely not going to do that that is um that's almost that's almost a shame i think because i think they could have made something up there with like I mean, until your heart stops is brilliant. Is it as good as Jane Doe or Calculating Infinity or We Are the Romans? It's not quite. Mm. It's not a million miles away, but I don't think it's quite of that level. Um, I, I wonder if you know if they had carried on down that road. Uh, I think they could quite comfortably have made. I mean, that's their fucking debut album. You know, you think like Halo and the Haystack is not that good, and uh, if you call the first Dillinger EP or American Nervoso by Botch, like. I think it's better than all of them. So I actually think, you know, of those releases, I think American Nervoso is probably the best out of Halo. Um, out of Halo. What did you just say? Halo. First Dillinger First EP. EP. Yeah. Which is fun, but no. Uh, are you including Until Your Heart Stops as well? Yeah, I think I prefer yeah, American. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's a tough one. It's American Nervoso is really good. I do really like it. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, the point is they could have definitely, I think Cabin definitely had him in him, in him in them to write and record and produce a fucking stellar metalcore album for the ages. Oh, yeah. Like for that for that time, definitely. Um, and when I say it's a shame they didn't, I only say it, you know, with my tongue slightly in my cheek because what they went on to do is kind of unlike anything else that <laughs> any of those bands even attempted to do. Um, I don't know if I'm broaching this too early, and if I am mm. and fucking it up for you, then do feel free to ignore me and I'll cut it out. But um, <clears throat> is that Cave-In's problem as a whole? They move on too quickly. Is that? And when I say problem, what I mean is in terms of commercial aspirations. Is that the issue? Uh, it could be. Mm. They're 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 way ahead of the game. Yeah aren't they it's 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 the interesting double-edged sword that makes them 
the fascinating band that they are, that they are, I don't know why I went into mm. the Bostonian accent there, that they are, um, without, uh, but also at the same time, probably one of one of the factors that didn't help their commercial aspirations at all i imagine yeah uh because you know well we're gonna head into jupiter well, in a minute and and it's very different Spoiler well alert. i mean look there is there is um less than a year between until your heart stops and creative eclipses yeah less than a year <laughs> right now Creative Eclipses is the 1999 EP, which I think is. Um, I'm, I'm sorry kind of to I'm so, sorry to correct you, Steve, but in terms of release, it is literally one year according to Wikipedia. Oh well, I've got May the 20th, 1999 for Creative Eclipses, and I've got uh, maybe I don't have that then. Released May 20th, 1998. Oh good, yeah, you're right. It is. Sorry, I was looking at the wrong thing. Um, yeah, it's exactly what exactly. That's mad, isn't it? I thought exactly one year apart. I thought that was pleasingly numerical enough to interrupt you. I do apologise. Oh, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you did. Uh, that was my sorry about that. No, no, no. Um, it, yeah, I mean, you've got one year between bringing out this absolutely horrendously savage metalcore record, yeah. and people being like, "Okay, we've seen this band playing. We know what they are. That's the thing," and then suddenly you get what what is creative eclipses like <laughs> i don't think it's as i don't think it's the same as jupiter like i actually no. i was about to say it's no. kind of like a a dry run a kind of dress rehearsal for jupiter but actually i don't i mean if i'm being completely honest i don't think it's quite as good as um well, that's quite as good it's not as good as jupiter right it's it's pretty good i think it's a pretty good ep you know, um, I think it's definitely the thing they needed to do, but it doesn't really feel like the finished article to me. It's got some wicked songs in it. I think Luminance is the best song on it mm -hmm. for me, um, which is still really heavy and it's got touches of that kind of spacey sounds on it. Um, and it, looking back at it now, it feels like quite a good indicator. But, you know, the rest of it is, or, or other parts of it are maybe not entirely successful. You've got a failure cover on there. Mm. Funny you mentioned them as an in inspiration mm -hmm. then. There they are. Although you knew that, I wasn't spoiling anything for you. <laughs> um, it's good. It's good. Creative eclipses, and I think it's it's, but it's good as a kind of ah, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's good as a, ooh. I think they did. Uh, they've done a few of these sort of um, bridging EPs, if you will. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. there's Creative Eclipses, Tides of Tomorrow, which we will be going into in the most detail, I would have thought. Um, and yeah, Planets, so. of, Planets of Old came a bit later as well, which is probably going to be after what we're talking about predominantly. And it was kind of like, the, they are more experimental records for the most part. Um, but when, when they get it right, they just sound absolutely amazing. Okay, tides of tomorrow. Um, but I think Creative Eclipse is, is an experimental sea change where not all of it quite works yet. But it was probably you see, I, I I whilst it's obvious that it's going in the Jupiter direction, I don't really associate I don't associate Jupiter with the cr Creative Eclipses the same way that I associate Antenna with Tides of Tomorrow. Like for me, 
Antenna and Tides of Tomorrow are almost, almost the same album because I, I listen to them. It, it's very likely if I go to listen to one, I'll then go to listen to the other. And that is not, mm. that is not the case with Creative Eclipses. In fact, I did re-listen to this for, um, for this research. Uh, Until Your Heart Stops, I didn't because I knew I wouldn't have to because I know it very well. But Creative Eclipses, I don't think I'd heard for, God, maybe a decade, probably longer, to be mm. honest. So I fished my copy out. Um, and it's much better than I remember it, actually. I remember not liking it all that much at all. As a matter of fact, yeah. if you put my gun, gun to head, I probably would have said it was my least favourite cave-in release. Um, I think I probably still feel that way. I just just like it more than I did. I absolutely agree Luminance is the best song on it. Um, I was... I suppose it shouldn't be a surprise given my post-rock leanings, but I was surprised at how much I liked Sonata Brodsky, which is like seven and a half minutes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> which is post rock as fuck um it is but it is it is you know but at the time i i the last time i properly properly listened to this album i probably would have found that quite a dragging last track which goes to show how long it's been since i've listened to creative eclipses but um mm. i really liked it going back to it I think of their yeah I think of their three extended plays it's probably my least favorite and the least indicative of what they would go on to do if that makes sense yeah it's the one time I think where you can tell they've just I don't know you can tell I believe that it was an just more of an attempt to go this is a full stop you know and and i can also see how people might have gone oh have you heard that cave-in have released this weird kind of part acoustic sort of rock weird elong you know long <coughs> song with all ambient stuff they've released this ep and it's got all this weird stuff on it, it doesn't sound anything like the first that's funny isn't it oh anyway they'll put a new album out in a year or so and it'll be what we expect again that well from, genu- from what i uh, like i've already said i wasn't there but from what i've read in retrospect that tended that tended to be the general opinion mm. yes mm. yes it did um i believe um so anyway we're getting very close to talking about the actual album um before we do i think there's a couple of things that we should touch on first one of them is the year 2000 the distant future, the year 2000, as Flight <laughs> of the Concorde say. A um, little bit of context. As I said, this is a very, very underground release, Jupiter. Um, we were definitely not out of the new metal woods at this point. In fact, the, 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 the branches and the debris was growing thicker and more appalling with every passing week, wasn't it? We got stuff like Hybrid Theory, Infest, The Sickness by Disturbed, chocolate starfish by limp biscuit all that fucking guff um that people are celebrating the 20th anniversary of now and their abysmal taste um <laughs> but we also had a bunch of brilliant releases from underground bands in sort of punk and hardcore as well Snapcase, avail glass jaw afi alkaline trio all released really really good albums that year Metal was in a pretty good place, I think, as well. Actual metal as well. Clayman by Inflames came out. Dope Throne by Electric Wizard came out that year as well. Um, but kind of really, um, we haven't actually put the special about Queens of Stone Age rated R out yet. But 
we spoke at length about rated R and how that kind of changed people's, I guess their their thirst for something that was just a little bit different, but yet still univ- still rock based. Do you know what I mean? I think there are a few albums that came out that year that were kind of were just a bit more intelligent, but still. Rock music had become well thick mm. in the late nineties. Like I do love some of it. I'm a fucking a, appalling Limp Biscuit apologist, um, and you know shit like Monster Magnet is ridiculous. But you can't not like Monster. Do you know what I mean? It's so great. Um, but there was a there's a lot of stupid shit coming out. But then there were also albums that you know that were a bit more sort of sensible and not even sensible, but sensitive and thoughtful and just kind of not embarrassing the sort of records you could play to normal people and go see rock music's not fucking stupid Mm -hmm. after all do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um but it was just sort of beginning i mean i think it was probably a response to that dumb i mean the music video was such a massive thing at this point in time and the amount of dumb rock new metal videos that have come out of this, you know, where, with bands who had no kind of creative juices or ideas whatsoever, just like, well, let's play in front of some gyrating girls because that's what people do in videos. Um, and I certainly think there was, uh, well, I don't, I don't know if there was like a huge desire for more intelligent music. I suppose there obviously was. I mean, I mean, Rated R did absolutely. Uh, decimate the critics polls um that year in terms of it was number one everywhere pretty much as you will learn mm. on our queens of the special um but certainly what cave went on to do i mean prog as this is this is often referred to as a prog album written yeah. written by a non-prog band I think mm. um, Rush are brought up all the time in reference to this album. And I totally understand why. I totally get it. Um, but Prog was so far from cool in the 2000s. I mean, it was probably the least cool it has been in my lifetime, or it certainly feels like it was certainly mid 90s to 2000s i mean rush was not the kind of band that you uh <laughs> that you used as a as an influence you know not 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 allowed anyway you wouldn't tell anyone that rush was what you were listening to yeah. so same with pink floyd same i mean dream theater were plugging away mm. um it always had an audience but, it always had an audience but as, yeah. as well you know i, I think music like prog it's metal to a degree as well it doesn't give a shit about being cool it's always going to have an audience but in terms of its cool points prog was way down like probably bottom it must have been bottom in terms of like the coolest genres yeah i think it's around this time that i mean it's a good point you bring up about prog and i think um it's around this time actually that the sort of the definition and the parameters of what progressive music what it meant to be progressive music started to at least those wheels were starting to be oiled that 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 would be put in motion a little bit i mean kid a came out this year right kid a is not a prog album by any stretch of the imagination but it's certainly 
you've not been able to escape the the progressive tag alongside Radiohead certainly from you know when OK Computer came out that was probably the first time it got used I mean we discussed this on our OK Computer special about the you know the idea in 1997 probably even less cool then I think Radiohead yeah. kind of made it slightly more acceptable to be called not prog but progressive yeah i think tall tall were about to bash down some of those preconceptions you also had Meshuggah kind of coming through then um in the you know in the second part of this we'll probably talk about um uh we'll probably talk about opeth and blackwater park well i know there is a little bit where i'm going to mention blackwater park by opeth and when when stuff like that started to just pick up a little bit of attention from people um prog and the, the sort of the nature of what progressive music is started to morph a little tiny bit but certainly i think in their own little way cave-in did as much to help prog uh and progressive music certainly within punk rock as fucking anyone i'm not sure i'd ever heard prog and punk get mixed together ever before this record came out oh you've put me on the spot there that's why it's such feels a like a no feels like a no-brainer that one like i just yeah. don't don't know that anyone has ever sort of gone i mean hard you know progressive hardcore albums and post hardcore like yeah but now yeah but back then i mean that's why called fugazi prog would you absolutely not no 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 um even even in their sort of longest moments i mean the, the longest fugazi song is probably like six minutes long or something like that i would guess um not that not that length makes you prog uh as my grandma used to say um but uh everything okay there steve <laughs> oh for fuck's sake just trying to turn the light on we're recording this at <laughs> night and i'm trying to turn the fucking light on and it's not even plugged in. I, I, I'm a little forget. Plug it, it. Don't plug worry. It plug it in. Go on. No, go no, on. no. Don't worry about. It. I'm not going to plug it in. I'll do no. this in the dark. All right. Uh, <laughs> I don't want you to see one. Be like the fucking Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, go on. Continue. Right. Yes. Fugazi. No, but... Like five minutes does not make you prog. You're right. Yeah, and it is. It is a really bizarre amalgam, which I have to admit, even to this day, I find it difficult to wrap my fingers around this record properly in that sense because it feels so different to anything else um maybe because it was one of the first examples or maybe even the first example but like i mean in terms of mixing punk punk and uh prog i mean the best example thrice. well i well yes thrice definitely did Covid. it but i was gonna say three yeah definitely coheed but three years later you got delouse in the commentorium yeah, which seemed to take it even in an even crazier, more deranged kind of uh, direction. Um, but certainly, like that mixture of kind of the immediate nature of punk, but mixed with broad, expansive ideas, doesn't feel like anything. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I do struggle to think of a record before this that really did that. Yeah. It, it is really, really difficult. Like I've kind of been racking my brains, going, "Well, what?" And you know, and everything that I come up with, uh, you know, Muse a year later, Muse were massive. You know, Origin of Symmetry came out, and Muse, and suddenly, like I say, Lateralis and 
Origin Symmetry come out, and those are fucking prog records. They're massive. And those very very are, are little, huge. Very little punk in Muse, yeah. Which is why. Oh no no. Uh, well, yeah, I know. I know what you're even saying. Less in, even less in tall. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like. Yeah. Yeah. But but you know you have to wait a year before this is even kind of vaguely acceptable. Yeah, it's worth and then it's worth remembering. It's not, and then it's full blown rock bands doing it, not punk bands. Yeah, it is worth remembering that Muse were roundly ridiculed with Showbiz, certainly in the press. Um, despite, I mean, Showbiz is a perfectly fine record, but like they, you know, again because they had the audacity to sort of have guitar solos and stuff like that. Um, mm. they were really, really ridiculed and Matt Bellamy hadn't sort of come out of his shower yet. He was more of a kind of shoegaze type figure and something kind of... Yeah. <laughs> Your favourite? <laughs> yeah, um, she'd fucking stayed there to be honest, but, you know, <laughs> fine. Um, but it was like, yeah, it was a really big... The, the difference between showbiz and origin of symmetry, I think it's one of the great uh, differences between the first and second record, actually. Um but uh, not related to what we're talking about, uh, because yeah, the very really. <laughs> no, like no, no punk in music at all. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to. Th- I mean, what did Thrice release prior to this? It didn't. It, prior it's to just, this, it's just Identity Crisis, wasn't Nothing. it? It was just the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or maybe it was the yeah. year after. Yeah, no, I fair think, enough. Yeah, uh, I, th- I, th- I think this is the kind of first time ever that you get somebody doing i mean okay if you want to go into heavier terrains maybe neurosis right maybe i mean i've actually got a um a little thing with um uh that that that, sorry not aaron turner that that steve brodsky said to me working with hydra head really elevated things for cave-in aaron turner pulled together so much great stuff through that label and our minds were continually blown by all the rad and heavy music happening around us in the midst of writing jupiter cave-in opened a bunch of shows for neurosis who had just released the times of grace album and everyone in our camp was floored by it we thought that was a good direction to go opting for atmospheric heaviness over pushing technical ability so there's a kind of contemporary influence and it's pretty and it and it's not like you know jupiter sounds nothing like times of grace yeah sounds nothing like yeah. Oasis. yeah but but you know the evolution of what happened to neurosis from those early early kind of cross punk days to where they got to certainly where i became aware of them on through silver and blood is a million miles away and i can see how that would be like an inspiring thing to see as a young band. Absolutely. But in terms of somebody who'd done something similar beforehand, no, not yeah. really. It's um, very difficult to think of one. I mean, like you say, um, I can see the through line with Neurosis and it's obvious that Times of Grace in particular had a massive um, influence on this record just because uh, mm-hmm. it's mentioned all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, but they don't sound like at all do they and yeah thinking of another punk prog hybrid pre-jupiter it is very difficult yeah it is very difficult so there you go um we're we're talking about maybe one of the first albums of its type ever or maybe the first album of its type ever um i also thought renfrey we should probably mention hydrahead records as well um as that was what this record came out on uh in fact this is what the first sort of four or five 
things that Kevin put out came on, um, came under. Uh, Aaron Turner moved to Boston from New Mexico and started going to shows as a young man. Um, and actually, his kind of involvement with the scene, Kevin played part, quite a big part of it. Uh, in that piece that I, what I wrote, he said this, I remember when I moved down, one of the first shows I saw was Earth Crisis supporting Cave-In. And even though I was there for Earth, Earth Crisis, I was immediately captivated by Cave-In, even though they were very much in their infancy. I was very energized by seeing a band that were even younger than me, so invested in what they were doing and not afraid to try things. I wanted to be an active participant. So quite a nice closing of the circle. The idea that Aaron Turner saw Cave-In and went, this is brilliant. I want to get involved in the scene. I'm going to start a record label and then ended up putting out this fucking brilliant back catalogue of music mm. Mm. for them um, is, is wicked. I um, I really love Hydra Head Records. Mm. I think it's just such a great, great record label. And when you bring up the artists that they've put out over the years... Um, They've just put out some incredible records. They've had Botch on there. They've had Kalesque on there. Converge, Cot of Luna, Dillinger, Escape Pan, Drowning Man, Today is the Day, Sun, Soylent Green, These Arms of Snakes, Neurosis, uh, Pelican, Piebald, Scissor Fight, I mean, Discordant Axis, Cable, Boris, Big Business, um, Mersbo, like... Torsh, mm. Yezu, Canute, fucking loads of people. Agrophobic nosebleed. It's wicked. Oxbow. Daughters. Like, yeah, Oxbow, daughters. Yeah, Oxbow. Yeah. Like, just, a, just a, like a really, really brilliant record label. Hydrahead. Um, I don't think Hydrahead is... Well, they are still going, aren't they? But they, they only do digital releases now or something like that. Uh... Um, I don't know. I can't remember. That but might be true. There, <laughs> I don't know, to be honest. There's been some some big change in Hydrohead recently, which means that they're not um, as prominent a label as they once were. But I once... You know, with some record labels, you can um, send, I don't know, $50, and you get... I think it was $50, and you get a box of 30 CDs at random from the back catalogue of the label. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. I've done that with a few labels in my time. I've done it with Deathwish. Uh, I've done it with BSM. Uh, but I've also done it with Hydrahead. In fact, I think Hydrahead was the did first you, did you do it with? Did you do it with Marilyn Manson's label and just got one Godhead CD? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 30 times. <laughs> um, Half of them were signed. <laughs> <laughs> And it's and it's a really really wicked way to discover new music, and mm. through that, uh, I mean, I, I like when did I buy this? It was probably like ten years ago or something like that. But through that, I got into uh, Heizu, uh Daughters. The self-titled Daughters record was in there. Um, Oxbow. Uh, oh, Woven Hand. I think were Hydrahead as well. They were fucking amazing. Um, just so many. Oh, th there was a brilliant like these arms are snakes split in there where they do a cover of like a virgin mm -hmm. by Madonna. I mean, oh, wow. so oh yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. So many 
amazing re releases that came in that box. I also, and I'm partly mentioning this this now because I, I want to make sure you're going to mention it. I'm a bit worried that you might skip over it. I also got the sacrifice poles in there. Do you know the sacrifice poles? No, I don't. What is that? Okay. Um, the sacrifice poles was a... It was released on CD in 2001. And it basically consists entirely of four track instrumental experiments and jams that Cave-In did for the Jupiter period. Oh my God, I've never even heard of this before. So it's almost like a full length version of uh, Creative Eclipses in a way. Um, it even has an early version of Brain Candle on it called Brain Candle Waltz. Um, <clears throat> it was recently re-released by Robotic Empire, I think. Um, but it's, and again, it's not something that I think is essential by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, when it was originally released, it was released in very, very, very small quantities. It's probably extremely hard to get hold of these days. I think it is... I can't remember if it's under Caven's uh, Spotify or not. I'm not 100% sure about that. But um, it's certainly a very interesting thing to listen to in terms of hearing how the Jupiter songs came together. Again, bar the Brain Candle Waltz, there isn't really anything on there um, that you can then hear later on from Jupiter. But there is you can you can hear a band trying to expand their horizons and do kind of broader things with their with their palette on it and it's not entirely successful but it is a very interesting thing to listen to if you're interested in that particular period i'm slightly surprised you don't know it um, well there's there's moons of jupiter on here which i don't know if that's something like it but it's not on spotify i'm looking uh, right now and it is not it is definitely not on spotify it is on um, band it is on Bandcamp. Okay, well, there you go. People know where we listen to our music now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Grimfrey's slightly better person than me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but okay, well, fucking hell, great. Um, you've just sent that to me on Bandcamp. I've just I, sent it to you on Bandcamp, yeah. I wish I'd listened to it beforehand, but fuck it. I haven't, and we move on. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's great. I mean, dude, that's, ah, that's fucking cool. Yeah. To just sent to get a random hodgepodge of stuff. Yeah, I, I really, I think, really love Hydra Head. They, I think one of, they the key, became sorry, my sorry, favorite the, label for a while. The key, I'm sorry, the key thing I probably didn't say there, make clear, is I think for a long, long time, people didn't even realize it was Cave In because it was just released as the Sacrifice Poles. And it was kind of released as a self titled album by the Sacrifice Poles, whoever they were. And the only way you'd find out is if you actually opened the booklet and saw, you know, music, Stephen Brodsky, John Robert Connors, mm. Adam McGrath, Caleb Schofield. But yeah, um, and I thought that was a kind of cool thing. But Hydrid Head seemed to be quite um, cool with doing weird shit like that, you know? And I can't think of... It doesn't feel like the sort of standard thing for labels to be doing, you know? No, not really. Um, but Wicked yeah wicked all the same yeah, yeah yeah that's that's fucking excellent um so i guess we should probably just get into it and actually talk about the record mm -hmm. um one thing i did notice which it, i i knew but it kind of hadn't struck me is that um they didn't use unlike most of their peers 
they decided not to use, and they used him on Until Your Heart Stopped, they decided not to use Kurt Ballou hmm. um, for Creative Eclipses or Jupiter and used Brian McTernan instead. Um, Brian McTernan um, has produced a lot of really, really good things. Like, really, really good things. Uh, quick. He's, Texas is the reason. Uh, yeah. Uh, Converge, snapcase, snapcase, Drowning, Drowning Man, Man Bold, Explosion, Hot Water Music, uh, The Movie Life, Darkest Hour, The Movie Life, Strike Anywhere, um, yeah, End Original, yeah, Hot Water Music, yeah, Thrice, Bane, Majority Rule, like he's done some really really good stuff. Mm. Um, I've always wondered why, you know, they never gave Kurt Ballou the the shot on that. I wonder if it was to do with wanting to move away from that sort of thing. And I wonder if yeah. um, Baloo, certainly at the time, surely, I mean, even now to an extent, I think he's so, if you think of a Kurt Baloo, uh produced record, you think of a particular sound, probably more so now than you did then. I would have thought. I think more so now than you did then. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the thing. I think now you go, oh, the Kurt Ballou thing. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that's right. true when you look back at, you know, the fact that he did everything from fucking, he did Until Your Heart Stops, he did Garrison, he did Orchid. He's doing lots of different mm. types of bands. Mm. Um, yeah. It was just, you know, a little thing that I wondered. Um, I mean, you know, who knows? It might have been a deliberate thing to go, well, okay, everybody's using that guy and we want to be as different as possible. So let's be as different as possible. Or maybe um, maybe he wasn't available. Or maybe he wasn't available. Yeah, we're, we're, it could have been that simple. Um, Brian McTiernan also did that Sharp Tooth album that we were raving about yes. uh, a couple of weeks back. So he's, they're in good hands. Um, so let's talk about the actual quality of the record itself, Renfrey. Um you said just said something interesting about this, where you don't feel like you can always get your your, My hands your on ears it. and your brain around it. Yeah, um, yeah. Go on then, explain yourself. Explain oh, your ridiculous view! Didn't think you were going to ask me to explain myself. Um, I don't know. I, it, it is a really difficult thing to grasp because it, this is one of those examples where. I think if you ask most Cave-In fans what their favourite Cave-In album you, is, you're going to get a different response, I think, because of the sheer breadth of their discography. I think if you were to, you know, if you were to do a poll, best Cave-In album, blah, 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 what's the most loved one? I think Jupiter would probably win, but I think it would oh, without be... Question. I think without question, Jupiter would win. But I think it would be a close-run thing. I think it would be, you know, I think there would be some serious votes for at least three or four of their records, I think. I think because there is three or four other records that people might vote for, I think that's what would make Jupiter such a clear winner. Because I think the majority, the, like such a, I think if it was a case of like two, like, do you know what I mean? If you do this with, let's say Kill Such Engage again, it's only ever going to be two albums. Mm-hmm. And one of those albums is going to win by a small margin. With Cave-In, you're going to have people who go, oh, Until Your Heart Stops, the first one's brilliant. You're going to have an unbelievable amount of people uh, who say Jupiter because it is because it is the best. And you're going to have a lot of people who got into them through Antenna. You probably pick Antenna, mm-hmm. a fair few people. I think you might, they probably picked up a lot of new fans over the last few years. And I think quite a few of them might say White Silence. 
Um, but I think because those three will be drawn out from their different eras, those other votes, I think Jupiter wins by quite a significant margin, personally. Hmm, okay, well, we'll never know. Um, we'll never know, unless we do a, unless we do a poll on our petty amount of <laughs> followers we have on Twitter. Um, but certainly it's a... I mean, it's such a contradiction of so many things. It's a far more melodic record than Until Your Heart Stops ever was. And it is really melodic in a lot of places. But it's also very kind of atonal and weird. I mean, taking a song like In the Stream of Commerce, for example, what Brodsky's doing with that guitar line and then kind of mirroring, mirroring the guitar line with his vocals in a falsetto manner which is almost almost laughable at points almost parody-esque i mean i never think it goes over into that but do you know what i mean just the the absurdity of it it does sound otherworldly and strange as a record called jupiter probably should do um but there's some really like i was just listening to in the stream of commerce the other day i was like this is a fucking weird song it's so weird. Like the, it is really weird. I mean, I mean that. To be fair, that is what makes it brilliant. But I sort of struggle to think of another song that sounds like in the stream of commerce. Really, for example, you know. But the thing, the thing that's brilliant about that is it kind of weirds you out that song for a while. Yeah. And then you get this beautiful, soaring, lovely chord, and you just think. I don't know why anyone wouldn't want to listen to this. Yeah. Whatever you're into. The because cor- it's so great. The chorus the is chorus stunning. Is, it's so great. Mm. I mean, t- to take you back to... I mean, I was going to ask you when you first heard this album, Renfrey, and I will in a second. But I went and bought this after it came out. And I bought it on the strength of the coverage they got in Kerrang, which we'll uh, talk about in a minute. And... I I bought it because, you know, I, I expected, once I bought it, I expected it to be something odd because that was what I was being told I was being sold. Was, you know, like, this is a really different record. Oh, my God. Like, they've really kind of gone fucking totally left field with this one. It's crazy. And I remember getting it back and being totally prepared for it to be this kind of, you know, even if it wasn't noisy, just quite atonal, elongated, difficult record. And what sort of struck me about it was the fact that although it kind of is all of those things, it's just so fucking catchy. Yeah. Pretty much all the way through. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's got so many hooks. Like, even, even in, you know, a form of music which, I mean, I actually think prog, I think it's a kind of myth to say that prog can't be hooky or catchy. I think it absolutely can yeah. just when it chooses to be. But this is this is pretty much all hooks. Do you know what I mean? Because the the weird bits are so weird and so but they're they're just so memorable. You know, the 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 way that Jupiter starts I I I don't think you'd have to listen to that twice before you could go the metronome is wrong again. Mm-hmm. I just don't think, I think that's in, that's in your head mm-hmm. straight away. Mm-hmm. And it's a weird sounding song and it's tonally odd. It's compositionally odd. Mm. It's really kind of 
um, slight in some ways, but then jarring in other ways. Mm. But it's always catchy. Big Riff is so catchy. It's heavy. It's weird. It dips. It rises. It goes mental at the end. The 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 ending. The but the the, 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 the riff, riff. The is, big riff. Yeah. 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 Like the riff on Big Riff. Mm. It's just so catchy. Yeah. Brain Candle is so catchy. Mm. Like, I think it's an absolute myth that this is a difficult record. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think it's, it might be a difficult record if you peel all the layers back, but it's not a difficult record to listen. I, I don't think it's a difficult record to listen to at all. No, personally. I don't. I don't think it's difficult. I just there's the sort of unease that it gives me. I don't know, <laughs> but I, I I don't think unease and difficult are the same thing. I I, I just think it's uh, I think it might might just be that it's kind of prog ideas performed in a punk manner, and I know we've kind of already touched on this, but you know. It feels like this is one of those rare records that feels longer than it is, but in a good way. Mm. By the end of it, like, I feel like I've been on some really epic, masterful journey in a, in a sort of lateralis fashion, you know? Yeah. But this album's 44 minutes long. Like I know, eight tracks. Yeah, how it manages to condense all of these massive, massive ideas into a relatively short space of time, but also have those ideas really stick with you. And I think it is down to those um I think it is down to those hooks and how massive they are. You know. Um I th I, I mean, yeah, it's 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 an astonishing record when you think of it like that. When you think of how it can condense such complex ideas into a very small amount of space and have them stick in your mind as well and become so... I mean, Big Riff, it feels like it's become the song that Cave-In are going to be known for, really. I feel like it's the song that they've probably... It feels like it might be the only song that I've seen them play at every single Cave-In show that I've been to, potentially. You know, it's like their Sugar or something like that, almost, at this stage. Um, Sugar, system of a down, system of a down. Oh, Robbie, you mean chop suey then? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mainly said that because Sugar's the only song that System have played at every show, but then Cave and have played this at every show. Stupid example. Um, wow, actually, yeah, because they when we get to Antenna, they drop it. Do they? From the set. Yeah. Well. Spoiler alert, guys. Oh, I didn't realise that. Okay, well, that mm. completely that completely discourages everything I've just said. Um, but the thing, mm. I mean, Big Riff, if you wanted to give... In fact, I had to do this once. Quick story. Um, I was in the very first time I ever went to New York. I, it was like 2010, 2011. Uh, didn't have internet access at that point. And so I picked up a copy of Time Out as soon as I got to New York to see if there were any bands playing that week that I wanted to see. And I immediately noticed that Caven were playing literally the next day at a great place called Santos Party House. And it was the first date. It was their first date back after um, just just prior to the release of White Silence. Um, so they'd come back with Planets of Old, but it was nice. their, you know, yeah. And I said, I turned to my girlfriend at the time. I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I know, you know, <laughs> 
I know the last thing you're going to want to do is go go to a gig, but Caven are playing. We've got to see them. Yada yada yada. Uh, and you know she was receptive. She was like, "Fair enough." And I said, "I'll I'll find you a few songs um, to sum up what like what they are and what they do." And Big Riff was the first song I played her because it's just it has almost everything brilliant about what Caven do in one song, almost. In fact, it more or less does have everything they do in one song. I yeah, I think it does. And what's weird about it is that it's not the longest song on the record. No, nope. it is the second longest song. Hmm. It feels like the longest song to me. Yeah. Um, and weirdly, oh no, sorry, it doesn't feel like the longest song to me. It feels like a really, really long song. Hmm. But I think New Moon is less than a minute shorter. It's more than a minute shorter, I should say, and that feels longer to me. Hmm. New Moon at the end, but in a really good way. You know, like you say, I think, like you say, they they have this way of like stretching time out, yeah, yeah. so that New Moon feels like it's like a twelve minute long song to mm, me, mm, mm. and you just get lost in it, and then you suddenly go, oh god, I've only been here for sort of six minutes. And yeah. big riffs the same. That riff could go on. That riff is like you know that riff in Forty Three Percent Burn. Mm. You know that fades out. You could play that. I. I wish they'd just played that. I wish they were still recording it now. <laughs> so that when I put 43% burnt on, I had like a nine year. Da, 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 gun, gun, and I wouldn't get bored. I'd never get bored. And I feel like the way that Big Riff ends, and just that boom, boom, ba, boom, 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 that whole thing, I just don't ever think I'd get bored of that. Mm. Like endlessly on. It's so, so great. That final um, guitar solo as well in Big Riff is so euphoric yeah. and so like fist in the air kind of moment. It's absolutely glorious. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, any other songs that you'd like to point out as highlights from the record, Renfrey, in your mind? You have already mentioned it, but I did want to give some love to New Moon just because I, I wasn't sure if you would or not. Mm. But I think New Moon is such Fucking a amazing. perfect way to end a record like this um there hasn't been it's the only song well no that's not i was about to say it's the only song which phil feels chilled out and uh it almost feels like a campfire moment you know yeah rather uh, and everything else on the record just feels really 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 big and then new moon they bring it right down right down to very subtle instrumentation and it, it feels like it's just mm. you and steve steven brodsky you know um it does have this massive climax towards the end but i i remember for years listening to this record forgetting that the climax happens when they go all big again and it gets all loud and stuff because i was so sort of entranced with what was going on before that big climax and before the band come in i just think it's an absolutely beautiful way to finish what is has been up to this point this really epic grand statement to finish it with something that feels so one-on-one and so personal almost um i really love new moon Mm, yeah it's the perfect sort of surprise ending Mm. i think Mm. yeah um because like you say it's not really like there's nothing else that's really like that on the record and debatably caven hadn't I mean, done it, anything like that at all up to that point no i mean i think there's sort of 
there's a little touch of it on Creative Eclipses that that's not. I don't think it's anywhere near the mm. same standard as mm. they do on New Moon, but I think there were pockets of like that idea. Mm. But you know, again, do a, do a punk band like a hardcore band? So I don't mean fucking punk band, a hardcore band, a metalcore band, ending their album like that, like is just fucking like balls out brave. Like that's punk rock. Yeah. Doing this is like the most punk fuck you to all those people. It, it really is. And they were saying, you know, we'll do something different. Fuck you. Fuck punk rock. Fuck your Like, fuck the scene. This scene that they were like such a massive part of. And also that was so great as well. It's yeah. a great, you know, why wouldn't you want it? I must have been the temptation to not change in 2000 when this shit, you know, we haven't even had Jane Doe yet. You know, this hasn't creatively peaked and then they release this. Mm. You know, it's still a scene very much in its infancy, I think, even though you talk about Halo and Haystack being 1994. I think in terms of what it would go on to do, you look at albums like Celestial by Isis, Cold Blue by The Hope Conspiracy, I've just mentioned Jane Doe as well. There's a whole load of great records that were still yet to come from this scene, but Caving kind of binned it off before it even got you know, fully great. Um, that's fucking brave, man. Mm. That's really, really brave. Like, what a what a wicked thing to do. And if it, and if you fall flat on your ass, you look like an absolute dickhead as well. Yeah. Like they could have they could have looked like like not you know not to someone like me who bought this album. It's the first thing of theirs I ever bought. I might have just gone. Oh, I don't really fan, you don't really like this that much. But to the people who've been uh, you know in and around that's they've been around and that loved until your heart stopped i mean we will talk about the reaction to it in a minute but i mean imagine if this album wasn't very good and they did this imagine if they fucked it up and it was cr- they did this and it was crap like you that you wouldn't see him for dust like the amount of bands that have done one sort of creative left turn and they've not nailed it mm. And it's just like, see you later then. Mm. Your career's fucked now. And Cave In, first time, nailed it. I think it's absolutely nailed it first time. I think it's kind of interesting as well. I mean, not to go to back to a topic which I'm, you know, constantly seem to bring up, but um, in terms of like the differences between Jupiter and Until Your Heart Stops, <clears throat> thinking of two modern metal heavy records that or 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 heavy bands that recently took you know big stylistic changes on their records there's a successful one in the parkway drive atlas to Aya yep. kind of thing and then there's a not, not as big a jump as this though is it well that's exactly the point i'm about to make but and there's yeah. also a not so not so successful one with suicide silence yep and again yeah and again, and and yeah, my, my, I mean, you've made my point for me. My my point was simply that if you compare this, I, I've said this to you in the past regarding the Parkway Drive record, certainly. And like, I just kind of go when I when I'm saying it isn't really a risk in the way that I would like bands to take risks. I'm talking about until your heart stops to Jupiter. That's what I'm talking about. Put in that context. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. My fear 
is that not many bands are caving. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> That's my fear, to be honest. Yeah. I'm happy to get a, you know, a pretty different part, you know, a different set of influences from Partway Drive and for them to make a good album, which is still a metal album, essentially, but it's just a bit of a different sort of metal album to the last metal album. And I know people go, wow, it's a really massive jump and stuff. And I think, you know, I think they should definitely be applauded for that. Definitely. And it's meant that they continue to make good records. Um, but, if, you know, if oh, I'm trying to think of someone who is even, I can't even think of anyone who has attempted this jump. I mean, we've spoken about a couple outside of metal and hardcore in who have got it right in the Manic Street Preachers and U2 mm-hmm. in in our classic albums before. Those are big jumps. Do you know what I mean? Like Holy Bible to Everything Must Go is a huge jump. Mm-hmm. Joshua Tree to Acton Baby is an absolutely massive jump. Mm-hmm. And I think Until Your Heart Stops to Jupiter is an equally massive jump. Yeah. Um but we the are- reason why we're still talking about those those artists like 25 20 odd years later is that they got it right i'm wondering if there are any that just completely got it wrong i'm trying i'm trying to think now i think this is where kind of like my argument often comes in though for i I suppose when i look at the parkways and the suicide silences um you know it's difficult to forget what you already know and and uh it's difficult for me to kind of jump on the oh my god yeah they're so different kind of bandwagon when you have examples like this where it's like it's really not though is it like in comp- in mm. comparison i mean we said on the radiohead special as well radiohead have almost made a career out of doing that i think they've slowed down a little bit but even now yeah. i mean you know even king of limbs to moonshape paul sound like totally different bands in lots of ways you know mm. um but yeah, I suppose. But certainly, and 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 I think Cavin made a career out of it, more or less. You know, as as we'll go yeah. on to discuss, like they've very much made a career out of it. Um, yeah, it's true. It's true. It's just you know, um, I guess, I guess what? <laughs> yeah, I think it's just you know, I, I get what you're saying. Like I I agree with you know, if if everybody could be Cavin and or everybody could be Radiohead great but the reason why we hold those bands in such esteem is that you know is that they are much better than those bands and it's not you know it's not suicide silence's fault that they're not anywhere near as good i mean so but like I su- i'm going well you know i suppose i feel that my one of my um jobs is to uh objectively give my reasons as to why i think quote unquote band is better than why x band is better than y band you know and and that is right there whenever we talk about bands making a massive stylistic change particularly in the world of of heavy music um whenever i say it's not actually the big change that people are saying it is it's because of it's because of records like until your heart stops to jupiter that's all i'm saying that's why you know they are the best of the best but obviously <laughs> not many people outside of this podcast are going to think that cave in are as good as or even better than parkway drive which is a fucking travesty but i i have arguments well, to say that objectively they're better that's <laughs> what i'm trying to say yeah well they, they, you know they, <laughs> they are I, I i think they are <laughs> i'm not even i think they are they yeah. definitely are yeah. um and again yeah it's absolutely no slight on parkway drive i mean i wasn't even sort of i wasn't it i think 
I think Parkway Drive's back catalogue's really good. Really, yeah. really good. I think Cavin's back catalogue is got is full of just fucking absolute tens. Tens yeah. out of tens. Pretty much. Um anyway, let's move on um and talk about the reception that the album got. The twenty third of September two thousand, JS Claydon from Pitchshifter sits on the front of Kerrang magazine. That's not going to happen ever again. Um, <laughs> flick to the review section, and what a fucking week this is. So I've got the review for Cave In, only a little kind of 120 word review, but lead review at the drive ins relationship of command. You're quite 5Ks. You're quite fond of that. As aren't it you? should. Yeah, yeah. I, w- oh, I would agree with you. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> I never thought I'd find, I mean, I absolutely fucking love Jupiter, as you can imagine. Mm. Not in my wildest dreams did I think that it wouldn't even be the best album being reviewed in Kerrang! that week. Because Relationship Command is the best album ever made by anyone, ever. That's a fact. Um, we're both, we're both fact. agreed that's my, that. That's my opinion. We're both agreed that Relationship Command is better than this record. But but not by... <sighs> oh, so different. Not by much. Not by loads. It, it's so... It's 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 not a you know it's not like I'm saying that Relationship of Command is the best album ever made and I'm still going oh you know it's the Jupiter's not quite as good yeah exactly yeah, yeah there's not yeah, many yeah. albums that if you put written next to Relationship of Command I'd go it's not quite as good I'd go get that piece of shit away from me <laughs> um, so <laughs> get that Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club back get that piece of shit away from me um, anyway uh, so yes Relationship of Command is reviewed. Soulfly's Primitive, not quite as good, uh, is reviewed that got week as well. That got three so, Ks? Got three Ks, yes. yeah, harsh. That's my memory. Um, so, so much for the 10-year plan by Therapy, a retrospective of one of our great rock bands of the 90s. Um, and also another absolute genre classic, Black Seas of Vengeance by Nile, getting five Ks as well. Um, <laughs> obviously, another big one, OPM, Minutes of Sobriety. <laughs> three three k's wow if i that's heaven's a half pipe if anyone remembers that fucking the same piece of shit song. same as uh primitive by soulfly that's bonkers isn't it yeah it's ridiculous <laughs> um some band called westworld got 1k and right next to it uh is a review by somebody called alistair lawrence for jupiter by cave-in four k's it says eight hearty chunks of prog emo in inverted commas apparently all right sarky um i'm going to read the full review uh because it's quite short claiming to occupy the middle ground between pink floyd and jawbox new england post-hardcore veterans cave in veterans at fucking like five years man mm. Mm. like you wouldn't call someone veterans that's how much no. the, the industry has changed yeah uh, veterans cave in would seem to have touted themselves as a truly unlistenable prospect promising to marry psychedelic drowsiness to discordant melodism. Luckily, what they're actually on about is delivering the kind of brilliantly buff nuggets that would undoubtedly be the result of ambient metalers tool linking up with Glassjaw to help them bleed that last elusive drop of teenage angst from their system. Stunningly evocative, Jupiter is a sound of emo core's most noteworthy new mutation delivered in less than 45 minutes damn near perfect now that reads like a five out of five to me mm. um so mm. it's a very you know it's a great review it's a good review it's almost as if uh, the editor sh- decided that they couldn't have three 5ks in one uh one issue didn't isn't it yeah 
you know, probably didn't know that 20 years from now, uh, somebody would find it like in their mum's house <laughs> and <laughs> dig it up <laughs> and like go, well, actually, yeah. this is proven to be wrong. That, um, d- that does smack of that, though. And that happens quite, quite often. Like so, uh, yeah. from time to time, if you want to give a album an incredibly good review, it's kind of like, well, we've already given the same mark to these two releases that month or that week yeah. or whatever. It's like, oh, OK. Well. To the new Black Dahlia murder album. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> so Loathe can't have a nine. <laughs> um, anyway, um, that's a pretty good review. I think the kind of I think I think that's a great I, review. I actually think Jaw I think Jawbox yeah, kind of Jaw Pink Floyd. Spot on. But, yeah. But yeah. that's what they said. And then he's going, no, nah, it's more like tall and glass jaw. I don't think it is. I think it's more like the first one. Actually, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Right. I think you're right the first first time around. I agree. Um, they, I saw that review and I remember thinking, oh, that oh. sounds like a bit. That sounds like a bit of me. Hence why I bought it. Mm. So the review definitely did its job. Um, so good review in Kerrang. Um, not such a good review on Pitchfork. 4.9 out of 10. I mean, this review, man. What the fuck? You made what me read this. Fuck? You made me read this yesterday and it infuriated me. I mean, it's basically the guy watched VH1 is the review. It's like a proper old school pitchfork review. I was watching VH1 the other day and they had the 100 best rock bands and they didn't have the Stooges in it, but they did have Motley Crue. And it's like, well, yeah, it's VH. Why are you, what, what's this got to do with caving? Mm. Nothing. Um, I'll read a little quote from it. If you still have a soft spot for heavy metal, but can't bring, bring yourself to dig up those old Def Leppard records, oh, Jupiter is just what you've been searching for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whenever I listen to Big Riff, it just reminds me of pour some sugar on me. <laughs> you fucking idiot. It's metal without the guilt. In other words, it's arty metal, which is once why some critics have embraced it open brackets this by the way is also why queens of the stone age have received so much undeserved press Mm. close brackets Mm. wow Mm. age well but do you know what though like i'm sorry to if i'm going off on one but this is exactly why journalists should have the bravery to say these things because then you can look back in 20 years time and if you think that their assessment turned out to be correct, you can be like, oh, OK, they're worth listening to. And if you think it turned out to be total fucking bullshit, you can ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist. Yeah, like Robert Crisco. Exactly. Um, at least at least Robert Crisco. Just to finish his quote. At least Crisco's bold. I'll give him that. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, not not many enough. of our yeah. contemporaries are that bold <laughs> no, but, yeah. no sorry go but on. jupiter actually makes me yearn for those old leopard records if only to hear the real thing what i i, 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 I steve, don't know what to say about this steve's i don't <laughs> steve's hand keeps keeps reaching for his face like you keep smacking yourself in the face you're so angry <laughs> i just don't know i i i i, I I read that and I was just absolutely flabbergasted. Yeah, it's uh, it's irritating beyond belief. I mean, <laughs> what are you talking about? It's what like are you talking about. Why it, are you bringing up Def Leppard? It's only a it, it's only a hair's breadth better than um, Enemy bringing up ACDC in terms of Converge, but that happened. Enemy later. also compared Enemy also compared uh, Death Tones to Iron Maiden. I remember that. Oh, um, I don't know bloody hell 
Pitchfork did not like heavy music in the early noughties. They just didn't. We, you know, we talked about this a bit. Uh, Nine Inch Nails, The Fragile got 2.0. Lateralis got 1.9. They just didn't like heavy music. And, you know, even like they gave um, Trail of Dead uh, 10. 10 into oh, like a year later 2002 year and a bit later but it's yeah. not but it's not but it's a different type of heavy isn't it it's a yeah, more but so is this that's what i don't understand well that's so true is this that's true well uh, th- th- this has got far more in common with trailer dead than it does with uh, than, than i would argue really than with nine inch nails or well, maybe not at all so much but like but certainly nine inch nails i agree and with certainly that certainly like when you know, I, I don't really understand. I, I, well, I just don't. I just don't understand. I just oh, don't I, understand. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think this is the product of someone doing a, a terrible job, like doing their job badly, not listening to it properly, listening to it in the background. Big riff comes in, and that's the the opening riff to Big Riff, and they go, "Oh, right, that's what the record sounds like." Um, you know, it's it's. I mean, and you know, the the fact that he's used half of his word count to talk about a fucking vh1 top 100 rock list just goes to show that he has nothing to actually say um but um yeah uh it's a fucking awful review and just sort of a classic example of people literally objectively getting it wrong absolutely drowning sound gave it a lovely review it said it's easy to see where this record can fit into the music scene of today the appeal is truly universal to those who enjoy a good tune like jupiter a thundering rhythm section innuendo out the other a versatile vocalist big riff new moon or those who like something that is good but different decay of the delay it pains me that the other multi-million selling lesser records can come Nowhere even close to being this good. That's nice. Uh, Lamb Goat gave it 9 out of 10. Said perhaps the, the album is so intriguing because of Cavin's past. Yes, they've displayed brief hints of things to come on previ- previous efforts, especially the Creative Eclipses EP, but nothing this dramatic. The music is relatively easy to get into, yet contains enough complexity and depth to keep you coming back for more. I think that is a very, very excellent point, which is totally unlike most instantly gratifying albums the music alone nearly has enough power to carry the album but throwing some solid vocals and this is a tough one to beat um punknews.org was pretty straightforward in their review it says look for anything this band puts out in the future because they are one of the best bands out there listen to this album so many times that your ears bleed and spin magazine uh in the aftermath of this album coming out did a little piece on them calling them the emo metal radiohead which pricked up a few ears, as we'll talk about in the second part of this. Um, but the band themselves were not that keen on that. Um, it never charted, obviously. Uh, but overall, I think that's sowing the seed for where it kind of sits today. When we talk about the the album's legacy, I think that kind of uh, it shows that there were people who were definitely prepared to go, okay, this is something really different. Mm-hmm. but that could be you know in the future uh, it, it's the the classic setup for this is the next big thing that you should be paying attention to right yes a lot of those reviews do give that impression yes mm. we'll talk about that um in a little bit i just wanted to say the kind of 
I'm aware, and you're probably aware as well, the punks sort of turned on Cave in a bit. We'll probably save most of this chat for the antenna um, part of the show, but because weirdly it did actually happen even more when antenna came out. But I mean, I think why Jupiter got away with slightly less of an antagonistic um, response from the, the kind of the, the hardcore crowd. And believe me, they're definitely, as far as I'm aware, I think there was a, a fair bit of like, you know, uh, friction that people felt towards this re this record. But it wasn't as much. I think it's just because it's that fucking good. Do you know what I mean? It's so good, and they're still on a little label, and it's such a wild, wild left turn that I think. I would like to think the majority of people just went, oh, okay, I mean, that's really good. So we'll let them off. Mm. Don't do it again. Wags finger. And then they did. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, any thoughts on that? Just an interesting breed. Metalheads, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. Interesting they breed. Are it's an interesting thing I mean, when you get people who are so passionate that, they're so much more dedicated than, I mean, you know, very generally than people who listen to other genres. But then the double-edged sword with that is uh, when they're wrong, they're usually wrong very loudly. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, they they are loud, uh, those, those guys. I mean, as we record, as we sit here recording, Biffy Clyro have just replaced Iron Maiden as the download festival headliners next year and the shit that people have been coming out with. I mean, the thing is you say about it being dedicated. I mean, unfortunately, I don't think this is true for this particular thing. Unfortunately, it's not even the, it's not even the sort of dedicated nature of it. It's the fact that they are that fucking, that they just, they just don't know any, you know what I mean? They're just so fucking Ignorant. set in their ways and narrow-minded and it, like it's just it, it drives me mad but anyway we're going to come back to this and make the sort of comparison between the reaction between this and antenna in the second part um i want to talk about seeing the band live i saw them at the underworld on this tour on the 17th of january 2002 it was definitely before tides of tomorrow came out i think um lost in the air was a single it was lost in the air and liftoff uh, was released as a kind of two-track single. And mm. I think I got one that night. Um, Six were supporting them that night as well. Mm. And I went down and they were just so great. Um, I want to read a couple of reviews. I actually found the NME review of that show, uh, which is crazy to think that the NME, they got to the point where the NME were actually bothered mm. about them. Uh, and they said this, if Billy Corgan was a decade or so younger, this is how the nascent Smashing Pumpkins would have sounded. A fearless mixture of psychedelic pretension and rudimentary hard rock. It's the encore and cave in are continuously running around with their guitars over their head in the midst of a version of Led Zeppelin's Days and Confused that, like most everything they do, is earth shaking and embarrassing in roughly equal measures. Hmm. Uh, a typically sort of snotty NME review there. Um, it's kind of kind a weird. Of I mean, I didn't want to like it, but it's a bit too scared to like it. I didn't see cave in at this time, but. I don't see any of that kind of showiness that they're talking about in that review in Caven's live performance at all. It's not, they're not Van no. fucking Halen. No. They, like, like just a lot, lift. they just seem like four d 
dudes. Like, I'm not trying to downplay. I'm not saying that it's a boring show or anything like that. Like Steve Brodsky's got charisma, and you know Caleb had an amazing presence on stage, and you know th there are four characters in that band, and they're very distinct. But I wouldn't ever have described Cave In as like showy, like putting your <laughs> guitar behind your back. That's just again, it's just objectively wrong. It's just not accurate. any band that move in any way. Yeah, I mean, you think they were the enemy? Yeah. We're looking at Travis and yeah, yeah, like sure. badly dressed boy around this time. So they would have Drawn. been like, "Oh my god, they're going, they're going crazy." No, uh, badly dressed boy. I prefer. To call <laughs> <it. But> <laughs> um, I've also got the Kerrang review of the Victoria Inn in Derby on the sixteenth of January. Um, so a few days later. Uh, it says, Caving, however, are classy live actors you will see. The Bostonian proggy post-hardcore crew use their guitars like precision weapons, sending out spiralling flares and sound and interlocking melodies between uh, six-string and voice. Lifting off with um, Lift Off, much the better of the two tracks on their ever-so-slightly disappointing new single. Hmm. Don't agree with that. Two fucking bangers. They then managed to turn the claustrophobic confines of Derby's only decent venue into the coolest place in the world for an hour um a sign on the uh, it says a sign on the victoria dressing room wall says any band that plays a note after 11 p.m will never play here again caving won't have to they're on the way to bigger and better things are they well mm. we will find out um i did don't seem to have the um set list from the show that i went to on setlift fm but they do have the set list from the lead show from the night before check this out for a set list renfrey jupiter innuendo joy opposites oh early yeah wow lost in the air decay of the delay stream of commerce coming to your own brain candle minus world lift off bottom feeder big riff i'm also pretty sure because the NME mentioned it, and I do kind of remember it, that in London we got that Dazed and Confused cover oh, as well. Nice. So that's um, that's good. That's very good. Yeah. That's very, I mean, very, that, very good. That is good. And I wasn't also, expecting those antenna cuts at all. No, well, there was you it go. two songs from Antenna? It was. And yeah, and one did I hear one from um Ties of Tomorrow as well? uh come into your own probably, i thought you said yeah yeah you did yeah um and also considering the sort of narrative at the time was oh they've stopped playing all the heavy stuff we got bottom feeder yeah as well from yeah. until your heart stops <laughs> yeah bottom so, feeder is definitely heavy <laughs> yeah so you know it wasn't all it wasn't all bad renfrey it wasn't In, all bad at all interesting interesting brilliant. interesting that they didn't go to the like for me juggernaut is one of the biggest songs from that era of cave-in yeah interesting yeah, yeah, that yeah, they yeah, went yeah. to bottom feeder rather than juggernaut or moral eclipses mm. or you know um, yes well i mean as i said they they would they had said i think around the time they weren't going to play that stuff anymore and it was gone you right. know what i mean it's like no we're not doing that anymore it's all gone we're not mm. playing it we're not going to shout anymore um but then they end with bottom feeder and big and big riffs. Obviously, got had Caleb doing the big like, yep. Yep. like all that stuff on it. Um, they were great, like they were. 
fucking great. Sixth supported them. And I remember being like, this is going to be really interesting because I'd seen Sixth about 20 times at this point. And, you know, that back then they were, I mean, they're still good live Sixth, obviously, but they were great live then. They were really great. And they were manic as fuck. And they used to go absolutely berserk. Mm. Um, and so technical, obviously. And I thought, cool, it's going to be really interesting to see how this really, really kind of spasmodic, high energy super technical really bouncy band in sixth um go on and then cave in who are going for a much more melodic sort of spacey uh, certainly more i was gonna say chilled out certainly more chilled out than sixth like how those two vibes are gonna like how they're gonna be able to follow that is going to be really really interesting and it was just effortless like it was just effortlessly brilliant do you know what I mean? It was so great. They came out, they sounded, they're one of the best sounding bands I've ever heard at the Underworld. The Underworld hit and miss for sound, obviously. Um, it just sounded fucking brilliant. And they just really, it's sort of one of those bands, like when they were playing songs like Innuendo and when Joy Opposites came out, and you know, we'd never heard that before at all. Um, sort of changed the molecules in the room. It was brilliant. Absolutely fucking brilliant. Um, so yeah, it was really good. Hmm. Uh, which only really leaves us to talk about the legacy of this album since we are putting it up as a classic album um, what is the legacy of this album in your mind Renfrey well you have you have changed my idea of what the legacy of this album is because towards the beginning of this chat you talking about it being the first punk prog hybrid um, I've yet to think of anything else that came before it so i think these days hearing punk and prog combined is not only um relatively common but i mean i think some of the best music that's ever been created has been has been taken from mixing those two genres together we talk about mixing dis disparate elements together all the time and there are actually quite a few um elements of punk and prog that on the surface wouldn't make for very good bedfellows but cave improved that with this record that they absolutely can if you take the right ingredients and the right elements from each genre and mix them together you can absolutely have something that sounds genuinely quite different and new i mean i'm still sort of struggling when we come to antenna there's a fair few records i could compare antenna to but it's quite difficult to compare jupiter to other records it is yep there is not an immediate comparison point at all really um mm -mm. i mean I, I do like i do like that from the kerrang review jawbox meets pink floyd um and i do agree yeah. with you that it's closer to um to it than tall and glassjaw i'm sure they just used tall and glassjaw because those were two contemporary bands that they could use as an example mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean a combination of pink floyd and uh and jawbox and one of the one of the elements we haven't talked about i mean i i think yeah they got kind of brought into that sort of emo kind of scene as well i mean i i think that's become far less accurate as time as time has gone on i don't think really they oh, were definitely. part of that emo thing at all mm -hmm. but i also understand um why they were given that tag at the time because it's such a difficult record to define i mean prog hardcore is 
like the closest you're gonna get, but that still doesn't really feel accurate either, does it? I suppose you've got mm. I suppose you've got bands like Between the Buried and Me. I mean, would Between the Buried and Me have yeah. been listening to this record and been going, Whoa. They certainly probably yeah. they certainly did the prog hardcore thing, didn't they? You know. Mm. Um and I think their first record was two years after this album. Um yeah. so uh I think maybe even bands like Fall of Troy. I mean, certainly getting loads and loads and loads of ideas into a very small amount of space might have protest the hero yeah protest the hero or that kind of thing might have um mm. i mean maybe there's a lot of i think you have to make a couple of leaps but maybe there's a whole thing with that tech fest scene um maybe it feels like the tech fest scene was indirectly uh mm. uh influenced by this record and i think that might be a key thing to say it's quite often i'm not sure if the influence is a direct one but Jupiter was then responsible for loads of other bands taking that and running with it in totally glorious, interesting new directions. But then mm-hmm. no one ever quite um, got, no, no one ever quite recreated what Cave In were doing with Jupiter. I don't know if any band even tried to, really. It's not as if this was a major commercial success or anything like that. No. Um, but it is difficult to think of someone who did that space progressive rock hardcore thing i mean just saying those four words together sounds ridiculous space prog hardcore Um, it sounds mental Mm. on paper if you try and like i mean thinking back to hearing like hearing it and it being like so this hardcore band this metalcore band have made an album that's like rush and i was like i have to hear that Mm. And then when I heard it, I thought, well, it's not really that. Like, it's something else. It's, it's kind of its own thing. I mean, to put it into a little bit of context, it was voted by Decibel the second best album of the decade. That's was it? 2010. Sandwiched between Jane Doe at number one and Blackwater Park at number three. I mean, to put that into some oh. sort of context for you, White Pony was number 61, right? Oh. That list is actually, fuck, is actually fucking great. But you're thinking this record is 58 places, 59 places above White Pony. Um, And the legacy of this album, well, I mean, I've lived with it and I've probably listened to it a couple of times every year and have done ever since I bought it. But it does kind of feel like something of a throwback to me now, even though it was completely alien at the time, because... I used to genuinely believe that you could be an underground punk band and reach a bunch of people just from being really fucking wild, really out there, letting your ideas run as free and creatively as they possibly could. And then if you released an album that was brilliant off the back of that, you might get signed to a major label and you might reach an entire group of people and you might go on to be one of the kind of definitive bands of your generation. And I heard Jupiter and I thought... There's nothing really here that leads me to believe that Cavin aren't capable of doing that if they carry on doing this thing. Uh, you know, because this album was in my head the first fucking time I ever listened to it. Bomp, there mm. it goes. I remember all of it. Mm. But it also didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before. Mm. This is a time where I think it was... This is like squeezing the last few little droplets of what hasn't been done in in rock music. 
it's like the last few because i think now you look at what you can do with vocals two guitars a bass and drums and you think well i don't really know how much in terms of the traditional idea of rock music and what has been pushed by you know rock and rap grunge and thrash and extreme metal as heavy as it gets i don't know what else we can really do there are things obviously if you look at you know um zelanada for as an example that there are definitely things that you can do um onda when we reviewed that record um i was like god i've never heard anything like this before code orange have found a way to amalgamate a load of stuff and make it sound really fresh and modern and contemporary but in terms of like genuinely like where can rock music possibly go sort of the end of the 90s was like we have nearly sort of squeezed the well dry and i feel like cave in jupiter is like one of the last little bits of debris of like nobody's done this fuck me listen to this it's so exciting it's so new it's so unique and that used to make bands massive like bands would be massive from doing that from like not giving a fuck what anyone in their scene or their label or their fans or the 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 greater kind of the way the lay the lay of the land in in popular music or what was cool at the time what the zeitgeist was you're a fucking metalcore band and you're you're taking inspiration from from rush yeah and like yes and pink floyd and camel and shit do you know what i mean like yeah you're making a fucking space rock album mm. Mm. what are you fucking meatloaf like what are you think what are you thinking mm. but the result of it is just so brilliant it, I, I think this is if anyone ever I and mean, we've had a few of these like i said we've had a few of these albums but if anyone ever tried to question your motives or your idea as an artist this is the sort of album that you need to put on to go no fuck you i am right i am right and even if that doesn't mean you sell a million records or whatever it probably doesn't mean that anymore i think that's the kind of travesty of why we're talking about this record yeah. and we're going it never charted it never charted it never got in the charts never sold all these these records in the same way as like acton baby we can go look they, they went for it and they did it look at what they did with everything must go and they sold loads of records well done them look at what roger waters did with the wall it was such a like fuck you but they still sold a billion records this is the first time we've had to go you don't always sell a lot of records but in terms of an artistic leap, in terms of the bravery to do something, this absolutely belongs in the same category and the same sentence as all of those other records I just mentioned. I genuinely do believe that it's as good as any of those records. It is. I agree with you. And it is interesting to note, for example, that you know the Wikipedia entry for this album is two sentences, which is insane. Yeah. It's insane when you can when you consider how much there is to talk about with this album as well. Um, it's kind of crazy that no one was paying attention, or not not enough people were paying attention. I mean, obviously someone was paying attention because um, their next full length album was released on a major, which we'll go into in the next part. We'll go into that right bloody now. So thank you very much for listening. That was our chat about Jupiter by Cavin. We're going to be doing Antenna next. Um, you might not have even heard of this band before. There is a very, very good chance that maybe you've never even heard of this band before. 
give yourself a little breather before we go into antenna if you've never listened to jupiter before you have to go and listen to it but thank you very much for tuning in we appreciate that uh it's been a lovely time and we'll um see you on the other side of the uh the the galaxy <laughs> little little space little space joke there Renfrey, since we're doing a space very good i felt like thing. i felt like i was rubbish. on the oh, infinite right, monkey cage for a millisecond there that's very good <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh we'll see you on the other side um for some chat about antenna see you later so as I said in the podcast, uh, I did a feature on the Boston hardcore scene for Metal Hammer. Um, during the writing of that scene, as I mentioned, I was in contact with Stephen Brodsky over email. And with us doing this special, I decided that it would be worth me shooting him another email just to see if he would be willing to answer a few of our questions regarding this particular record. And he was very, very kind. And he sent back a few voice notes um, for us to uh, to kind of demystify some of the things around Jupiter um, which is what we're going to play for you now um, so I did ask him the sort of first thing was how it came about and why they decided uh, that they wanted to move away from that kind of Boston metalcore scene and the hardcore sound and start experimenting more with melody um, and this is what he had to say regarding that well as far as putting more melody into the music of Caven um we were working quite a bit with producer, engineer Brian McTernan at the time, and he was very encouraging about my singing, um, you know, trying to implement more of that into the band's sound. Um, I needed it, too. I was still sort of figuring out my way as far as being a melodic voice in Caven. Um, so that was super helpful. And I think once we had Caleb Schofield in the band, um, it sort of made sense to, I guess, throw the rule book out the window. Um, because he joined the band about 75% of the way into writing until your heart stops. So as far as Creative Eclipses and Jupiter goes, um, you know, those releases were written basically from the ground up with this new four piece and it was very liberating so the next thing that i wanted to know was how quickly and how easily how seamlessly that change in sound happened um were there any kind of straggling parts left over from the old metalcore days that the band couldn't quite get out of their system at first how easy was it to transition into that um and you know, was there anyone in the band who maybe got kind of slightly cold feet? I know when we did our U2 special, we spoke about Acton Baby and how Larry Mullen, the drummer in U2, was a little bit tentative about that change in sound. Um, so we were very interested in how quickly and easily and naturally that change in sound came about. So we asked Stephen about that. And this is what he had to say. Well, the song Innuendo and Out the Other, that originally had a different ending. And it had this cool sort of screaming, singing, interweaving thing with me and Caleb. Uh, and overall, it was just much more aggressive. And by the time we went to make the Jupiter album, um, we had changed it. Uh, I don't remember exactly why we changed it. I think there may have been just like a weird feel thing um, where the song goes from like a three over four sort of syncopated thing to like this swing feel. And we just never really nailed it um 
So I wouldn't say there was friction over that, but it was, you know, it was kind of a bummer, I think, to um, do away with uh, another Caleb vocal spot. Um, so looking back, there's really only one on the Jupiter album. Uh, so that's a bit of a bummer. I think in hindsight, it would have been interesting, I think, to maybe just try to explore what we were already doing in that song um, and maybe save that ending somehow. Um, and the song Inflatable Dream, I think, should have been on Jupiter. Uh, in hindsight, you know, I think that would have been a perfect place for that song. The reason I think we left it off was for reasons of sonic consistency. Um, we wanted, I think, everything recorded at that time um, to just be the album and not have any sort of straggler recordings as part of it. Um, but looking back, I think we could have mixed it in a way that it would have blended in somehow, um, and we would have heard more Caleb vocal on the Jupiter album, which would have been cool. But uh, you can hear both of those songs, the original Innuendo and Out the Other and Inflatable Dream on the Cave and Anomalies record. One of the big things that I was very interested in when um, listening to the record the first time around was the scope of influences and who was the kind of single biggest influence on the band as they went in to record Jupiter. Obviously, having listened to the podcast, you'll know that we've thrown in a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of different names around this record. But I wondered if there was one singular specific artist that um, that really inspired Cavin to go on this mad tangent that they went in. So I put that to Stephen and um, I was pretty happy with his response as well. Uh, the big influence on Cavin at the time of making Jupiter, um, hands down, Neurosis. Uh, we did a week-long tour with those guys, and, you know, the four of us were barely old enough to drive at that point, and here we are on the road with some, like, seasoned 80s hardcore <laughs> veterans um, doing something very much in the vein that we wanted to do um, as far as, like, making very graceful, heavy, artful, cerebral music that was loud and powerful and challenging. Um, and I think that experience with being on the road with those guys was super transformative for Caven. I wanted to know how much Steven thought the band abandoned hardcore and abandoned punk rock and whether, in fact, actually by making this very complex, very different, very unusual um, particularly for the scene that he was in and amongst his peers, this very different record was actually the punkest thing that Cavian could have done. So, yeah, was very interested in what he was going to say regarding Cavian's relationship with punk rock and hardcore. Well, Cavian never really abandoned punk and hardcore. Um, we just wanted to sort of change within it and cross our fingers that we would be embraced for it. And... Uh, I don't think we made all the best moves. I mean, yeah, at times it was fun and exciting to, you know, play shows and and play 90% of material that people weren't expecting to hear from us, uh, for better or worse. Um, but, you know, maybe in some ways we kind of shot ourselves in the foot by not honoring our fans with, you know, maybe more material from 
records like Until Your Heart Stops or Beyond Hypothermia, but really we were changing at such a rapid pace. Um, I think as artists, musicians, the band, and just people in general. So um, we very much needed punk rock and hardcore, and we still do. I think one of the most integral things that I really felt that I needed to ask Stephen was regarding the reaction to those songs live. I mean, when I first heard about the band and I first heard the record, most of the stuff that came alongside with it was these tales of um, butthurt punk rock and hardcore fans getting really, really annoyed that this band that they loved weren't playing the screamy, shouty material. So I really, really felt like it was integral to ask Stephen what those shows were actually like. Um, because I have to be honest, <laughs> I think I would have really, really liked to have been there to see those things happen. Yeah, there was definitely some confusion with people showing up to see Until Your Heart Stops Cave-In and getting Jupiter Cave-In. Um, but as far as confusion goes, we were so used to that at that point. <laughs> um, you know, the first, like, three years of our band, it was a constant lineup change thing going on with different bass players, different vocalists. Um, and then when we finally solidified the band as a four-piece unit with Caleb, um, I think just changing our sound was like another continuation of this confusion that we had sort of embraced at that point where we were just used to it. I mean, I guess it would have been weird if we weren't creating some sort of chaos. Um, but yeah, people were, I think, weirded out and they weren't sure if we were playing cover songs or what. Um, and they just had the misfortune of being treated with stuff that we wanted to road test before we committed it to tape. Um, <laughs> I say misfortune, but actually some people seemed to like it too. I mean, there was definitely a change in our audience happening at the time, and um, that was okay. You know, we were young and excited and just ready for whatever at that point. Now, obviously, a lot has been said regarding the fact that Jupiter brought a lot of new ears to Cave-In, um, a lot of new ears to Boston Hardcore. I mean, this is obviously, as I've mentioned in the special, you know, pre-Kind of Jane Doe, and I think if, you, if, if that scene did have a commercial boom, it had very much definitely yet to have happened when Jupiter came out. But there was, you know, bits in Kerrang, bits in Spin, bits in Alternative Press. Um, I was really interested what it was like for a band like Cave-In to suddenly be getting that kind of attention around that time because you have to remember back then it just really really didn't happen and um yeah, this is what Stephen had to say well for the jupiter record we hired a publicist we'd never done that before i think it was hydrahead's first time working with a publicist as well uh so as far as reaching new media outlets um that, i guess that was expected but um we weren't sure what people were going to think of Jupiter. Um, we just kind of took a Hail Mary, really. Um, we knew that we really got a lot out of playing those songs, and we played them hard, and we played them passionately. Um, we were very meticulous about the way that we made the record so that we could duplicate it live, and there wouldn't be this missing link between the recording and the live performance. So... There was a real honesty there, and we were just kind of hoping that the honesty of the expression would kind of push through any weirdness about this hardcore band that went a little sort of off the deep end. 
and bearing that in mind i did wonder how much once everything kind of settled down and the album was out and people had seen the reviews i did wonder if cave-in's crowd actually changed at all if there was a noticeable change in the type of people that were coming to the gigs around the time of the album being out a little while when jupiter came out and it started to really settle with people uh, we noticed that there were more women coming to see the band um, there was just more of a balance between the male to female ratio in the crowd and that was pretty interesting uh, caven was also playing with a broader palette of bands outside of metal punk and hardcore so that created a change as well ultimately one of the last things that i wanted to ask Stephen was regarding if you would have changed anything about the album how he looks back on it and some favorite songs obviously you know you and i the listeners of music we all have our favorite songs from our favorite records but um I've always wondered if you are the person who's writing that song, if you do actually have a favourite of your own. So, you know, I wanted to get Stephen to kind of look back and basically sort of say something nice about an album that we've spent a very long time saying nice stuff about and deservedly have spent a lot of time saying nice stuff about. So, um, yeah, I just wondered if he had a kind of favourite and how fondly he looks back on that record. Yeah, I look back very fondly on the making of Jupiter. Um you know, it was a chaotic three years of basically 1995 to 98, um, where the band was in this constant state of change with different members who all contributed wonderfully in their own right um, to the evolving sound of the band. But it all crystallized when Caleb joined and we started writing from the ground up. And um, we had this great team, Brian McTernan, Hydrahead. They were all rooting for us and basically giving us 100% creative control. And we were hungry to make this musical statement, and we did. And we did it as honestly as possible. Um, as far as a favorite song, I don't really have one. But I do think Big Riff is the obvious representative track of what we were trying to do at that time. Um, it's the song that we've played the most. Um, yeah, I can't think of a cave show that we didn't play Big Riff. <laughs> um, Adam, myself, JR, we could play that song in our sleep. My final question for Stephen regarding this record was something which is basically what this podcast is about. What is the legacy of that album? We call this the classic album series podcast. We consider all these albums that we talk about classics. Um, it's a kind of loaded word uh, to call something, refer to something as a classic. Um, it's pretty easy. It's been pretty easy to justify many of the multi-million selling records that we've talked about in this series as a classic. But some people might bulk an album that they've possibly only just heard of from 20 years ago Um being put in the same company as some of the, the records that we've been talking about in this series. Um, I think it absolutely deserves to be in there, and we've spoken about what I think the legacy of this record is. But I think it's an interesting question, what the legacy of this, of this record is. And it's certainly a question that I wanted to get Stephen Brodsky to answer, and he did answer it, and this is what he had to say. The legacy of Jupiter is pretty simple to me. Um, 
it's basically a band sort of challenging the very notions of what it is or what it's perceived to be and coming up with some degrees of success rising to that challenge um giving people what they need instead of what they want um and as an artist um sort of putting out what we needed at that time and the universe responded accordingly. I mean, there were a lot of really cool doors that had been opened to Caven as a result of us taking that risk. And I hope that it can continue to serve as an example for other bands, other artists to do the same thing. So there you have it. Really, really, really want to say thank you very much to Stephen Brodsky for taking the time to answer my questions and Renfrey's questions as well regarding this album um, and for making the record back in the year 2000 which is mad to think that it was 20 years ago thank you so much for listening um, and flick over right now at patreon.com forward slash right act podcast where you can listen to me and Renfrey talk more cave-in this time talking about the follow-up album to Jupiter Antenna and um, once again, we will be getting the thoughts of Mr. Stephen Brodsky on that record as well. Um, give yourself a little break and listen to Jupiter if you want. You can listen to Tides of Tomorrow. Just get yourself proper pumped. That's what I would suggest you do. Um, that's what I do most days anyway. But anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And we shall see you and hear from you. Hear from you. We won't hear from you. You'll hear from us, I should say, very soon.